You're listening to One Good Take, the podcast that delves into the nitty-gritty of film development and distribution and explores the often elusive chemistry that brings the film to life. Hey, and welcome to One Good Take. Today we have writer-director and producer Paul Dudbridge. If you're an independent filmmaker working to a tight budget, this is a good episode to listen to. Besides his own personal tales, Paul goes on to give us some very useful tips on reverse engineering a script, so it appeals to name cast and investors alike. Paul and I got together early in June 2022. Here's that take. Paul, hi. How are you doing? Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. I understood from a bio I read of yours that you picked up a camera age 10 or something like this and just sort of started experimenting and um, making little films. How did that progress? Yeah, so when I was 11, actually, my dad bought a video camera for the family, which is called a Betamax, big sort of shoulder thing, which took Betamax tapes. And he bought it to film sports days at school, holiday videos, that kind of thing. And um, my friends and I, we sort of put on this play in my friend's back garden about cowboys and Indians, and dad filmed it. And we realized when watching it back, bless him, dad kind of filled the, filmed the wrong bits. Like I remember once I was like a, a buffalo and I got shot and and then the, the, I thought the camera was going to be on my friend Dan who had fired the arrow, but he filmed me running off backstage and it was <laughs> right, like yeah. a long bit. Uh, so then me and my sister actually wrote a script just for, to be filmed rather than putting on a play. And then we just started making a film a year about us kids finding a treasure map and then someone's breaking into our house. Um, and the story's got a bit more elaborate and... You know, we were 11, so one of us would be like the kids and then there'd be one of us playing like the detective or, you know, something like that. And, and, yeah. and obviously the ages were all sort of messed up. Um, but yeah, that's how it started, really. And it just progressed and progressed until dad got a new video camera, which we borrowed and stole, <laughs> actually. Yeah. And then kind of sort of moved on to go to college, really. But we were filming those those films were actually a really good discipline because we were filming them all in camera. There was no editing. Um, okay, so how did you actually put the film together? Well, literally, you, you hit record, and that was the beginning of the take. And then you hit <laughs> okay. stop, and that was right. the end. But what it was, it was a really good discipline in knowing you're in and out of the shot and knowing that, you know, you might tap the person, the camera operator on the shoulder to hit record rather than saying action or action once the thing was running because then you'd have the word action on, on, gotcha. on the tape. Um, and it just became a really good discipline of like, okay, so you run through the gate, over, over the fence, up to the camera, steal the box, and then you leave frame left. And that became the shot. So we knew exactly when we were cutting in, exactly when we were cutting out. And then we bought like an audio mixer, which enabled us to play the video from like Hi8 video onto VHS. And we would interrupt the signal with an audio mixer and then feed in some music. So we were able to add some music to our films. But it was also a shot on camera until we went to college when we started cutting tape to tape. And what, why did your dad buy you a camera? I'm just curious. Was he already, well, clearly not a cameraman, but... Um, no, he, but, just, well, he just wanted to film, you know, the family, the cat, you yeah. know, birthdays and sports yeah. days and stuff like that. So sure. we just, yeah, it was, it, was, it was good that we just bought, borrowed his kit, really. And he still has the Betamax camera in the attic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Week, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you, you then went on to film school? Well, I didn't go to film school. I did a year at a college which was like a really basic TV and video course where uh, I shot kind of two two features really on VHS 
which was basically my film school, kind of me and my friend, like teaching ourselves editing, really. And then occasionally we would actually remember that we've got a video project due that weekend. We'd go and shoot something real quick and and submit it. But we were there to, to, to cut our own films and make our own films. You know, we were in the edit suite at half term and Christmas holidays and stuff and just borrowing all the kit and, and shooting the movies, really. Um, yeah. So when you say a feature, that sounds really ambitious. Yeah. What sort of cast did you have? Like yeah, three well, people actually, a lot of friends and family. But I remember I shot one feature in the September to December of 95. And then we did another one uh, February to July of 96. So we did two features that year. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Which kind of even that back then, it kind of taught us how long it takes to put a feature together. We were filming for like four months at weekends. Yeah. You know, and you'd film like a whole day and you'd end up with two minutes. And yeah. like, this is going to take a while, isn't it? You know? yeah, yeah. And then you learn the lessons of like haircuts changing. Your lead actor goes <laughs> on continuity, holiday. Continuity, yeah. Yeah, and comes, yeah. your lead actor goes away, comes back with a tan. Yeah. And you're like, uh, and the, and the leaves are off the trees. And you're like, oh, uh, and you don't realize this until you edit. And, and, and then it's just you know, stuff like that that keeps you in good stead for like now where, you know, I'm shooting something and then, you know, someone to say, oh, like we could we could do a pickup in September, and I'm like, well, no, because it's a white house. And yeah, it's not going to fit. Yeah, get mad. Yeah. Um, mm. So small things like that. And we would just do videos at weekends, like my friends, you know, me and my friend Will would just chase each other through the woods, doing action movies, and I would film him running, and then he would film me running, and then we would put the camera on a tripod for us to both be in the same shot. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and and what we had learned from that is like five minutes of handheld and then it would go suddenly on to like a static camera as we were both and it would really jar yeah of course yeah and, and you know and now you know you know what's your next shot is it static is it handheld are you cutting back and forth is it gonna is it gonna fit so yeah lots of lessons learned back then growing up yeah and were you writing the scripts yeah so we were writing and all my sister was writing them back back in the day um and then my friend will was writing them so yeah it's a bit of a joint effort all around um but yeah kind of yeah lots of you know just sort of writing the early drafts and then just realizing how long they you know not the whole kind of page a minute thing of we would write a script for like you know it'd be 45 pages and it would end up being about an hour long so it wasn't a feature it wasn't a short it was somewhere in between um, yeah. so then you start realizing well actually you know how long does the script need to be in order to make it a feature it needs to be a bit longer, which needs to be fleshing things out. The structure needs to change. And you kind of teach yourself all of the elements, really. Yeah, yeah. And what genre did you gravitate towards early on? Uh, kind of action thrillers, you know. Um, Sounds like I, it. Running yeah. through the room. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, was, uh, I used to have cap guns as a kid. And then I bought my first blank firing gun when I was about 15. And it was good fun and running around the woods. You can do a lot of that now. but So we would do a lot of that. Um, and just trying to emulate what we were watching, really. I mean, back in the day, I was into John Woo movies, um, you know, Indiana Jones, and you're trying to go, right, how can we do that? How could we do a car chase? How could we do that shootout? And we would have a blank firing gun, and then we would have, like, firecrackers from the joke shop, which are like little tiny sticks of dynamite, and we would sellotape them to the wall and then light them and hit record, and then this, like, spark or this little spark of dust would go off and that would be our bullet hit yeah um, and things like that so we were just kind of trying to emulate inventive know, yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah improvise in, yeah. be inventive yeah 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 
Yeah. And of course, later on, you went on to do this big series, really, uh, Horizon. How did that come about? Well, Horizon, yes, that was, um, that was ended up being a lot bigger. Basically, it was a, a, a couple of friends and I, um, well, my main sort of collaborator on that was a local filmmaker called Simon Pierce. And we kind of got together and said, well, look, what, we're, we're quiet in January, February, March. Let's, you know, being in the business, let's shoot our own thing. And instead of doing a short, or a feature, let's do a series, which at the time, you know, we were watching shows like Lost and Walking Dead, and we I kind of loved, and 24, and we kind of loved the whole cliffhanger element of having a, something at the end of an episode that draws the audience in. So we started this web series about an alien ship that arrives over Bristol, and, you know, these this five sort of friends and family um, members have to kind of evacuate the town and each episode would be like bite-sized kind of six or seven minutes long and the idea being you'd watch it in the morning or whenever it was released and then you would have uh, the next episode would be unlocked on the website the following day so we had 10 episodes that were uh, five one week and five the following week all with a little cliffhanger leading to this finale um, and and it was good fun and we learned a lot and then we kind of ended on a big cliffhanger. So then we sort of thought about a year later, well, we perhaps better do a second season to wrap it all up. Um, so we did that. And it was a really good learning experience about a lot of VFX and stuff, which put me in good stead for like the future projects. But it just became a massive thing that almost we called, we said like the train left the station. And in order for us to complete it, it would just be cut, you know, suck up a lot more time, a lot more money. But, you know, we sold it and we still get money from it today. And, you know, emails from around the world, people going, oh, I've just watched your show. It was brilliant or it was crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So so how did you fund it? It was all self-funded. We had a, we actually, we had a Kickstarter campaign that brought in about four grand. And then Cy and I kind of put in the rest. We had to really. Yeah. Once we had written the script that says, uh, they break, in, yeah, <laughs> or they break yeah. into a museum or, yeah. you know, they're in the morgue, then suddenly we need to find a morgue and that set costs 500 quid. So a lot of the time me and Cy would split the cost. But, you know, it was it was great. It was a massive project that probably took about three years in total, a lot of money. But like I said, we won a few awards around the world. We ended up, me and Cy going, ended up going to Denver. We were invited to, a, you know, an all expenses paid trip to Denver for the festival over there. So stuff like that came from, which was really good. But the main thing was just what we learned about shooting and VFX really. It's just Yeah. To, how did you do the VFX, uh, you know, on a minimal budget? I've always had an interest in visual effects and I started doing them myself back in 2003. I made a war film down near me, um, about 45 minutes long, and I had a CG plane, and I had some bullet hits and a few other things. Then I made a Christmas movie with some fallen snowflakes, and I kind of taught myself 3D Max and After Effects. And then I realized I could use it, but I wasn't. It wasn't my strong point. I needed to find someone that could do actually, you know, do the effects properly. So I found a local artist called Alan Tabret, and he was basically a, like a, a version of me, but sort of stuck at the VFX stuff. And he did all our effects for Horizon. Um, and I've used him since. So we kind of both have an interest in sort of green screen and CG and how it can incorporate into the films. And and that's how that all came about, really. And so were you paying your cast and crew as you went along, you know, kind of minimum sort of wage? Uh, were- I think, I don't know if we paid them, but we sorted them out with petrol and... and, and um, Expenses, basically, yeah stuff yeah because the people that were filming it with us were kind of filmmaker friends that wanted to do it 
Um, and then, uh, so yeah, if it was an actor that had to come down, a friend of ours from London would pay for his train ticket, put him up at my parents' house, pay for his food. So he wouldn't get money, but he would be, not be out of pocket. Yeah. And how did you source actors? Was that sort of Mandy.com and that kind of thing? Or? Yeah. And also we just know a lot through the network, really. Just yeah. friends of friends and, and things like that. And then if we needed someone that we didn't know, we would put out a call and find someone. And and yeah, that kind of, that's the way it kind of came about, really. But we had a quite an extensive network anyway between the two of us um, and down in here in Bristol. So it would just be sort of using those people, really. Yeah. And I imagine given that's your job, you know, producing and directing, you had quite a lot of kit to begin with, like cameras and sound. and. Yeah, uh, we had to, on season one, I think we had to hire some some kit and then season two we had a couple of dps that would come in for various episodes with their own kit who were very you know kind of we were great very grateful for and if they weren't working and we said look can we shoot sunday and they'd be like yeah fine so that's how we kind of got the kit and then we would edit it mine on my kit so the post was kind of covered it was just the location hire and food really that kind of took a lot of the money you were shooting over three years did you say yeah, roughly, I yeah, think. Yeah. I mean, I think we shot that season one and two were spaced out over. It wasn't completely over three years. It, you know, from start to finish, it was. But we'd shoot like, I don't know, for like two months or maybe a month in season one. Then the post would happen. Then we'd release it. And then we'd start season two, which probably took another sort of a month or six weeks. And then, yeah, then it'd be in post again. But the post on season two was horrendous. It was like 18 months. Yeah. Um, Is that the BFX, I guess? Yeah. It just, and, it's so long, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah all of that and it was just you know it was it was such a looking back it was such a big learning curve which was you know you can't fault really you know but if the script says alien ship above bristol and then three fighter jets fly in and fire a missile and then you know another alien ship releases green gas and then the first alien ship blows up and shatters the window of a nearby building that all has to be done and you yeah. go okay <laughs> yeah how <laughs> yeah um so yeah you know yeah what was your target audience for that um kind of us really kind mm -hmm. of yeah i think we wanted it to be uh and at one point and i think we did actually manage this where we wanted it to be this fun thing that we released every episode at like eight o'clock on a weeknight and then, you know, we'd have some comments or you could watch it the next morning on your iPhone over breakfast or on the bus going to work. And we had, you know, sort of all ages from sort of 10 to 65 sort of tuning in. And I remember getting an email once or was it a Facebook message on the site? And it was some woman from Northumberland, 55 year old housewife saying, I'm just watching episode three. I love it. And I was like, oh, great. Who do you know in the show? And she was like, well, nobody. I just discovered it and yeah. i was like oh okay so we realized the show was reaching people it wasn't just our network that happened to be watching it um and yeah. it was great and and i remember there was one episode four i think where Sai was actually in it as well he's one of the directors but also an actor and he had a mark on his neck where he actually she had been in the story he had been abducted by aliens when he was a baby and that was the mark on the neck and and we didn't talk about that in the show to like episode three eight and it by episode four people were spotting it and like screen grabbing the, sh the thing and putting on twitter going what's this mark and it was great we kind of had this buzz that people yeah. were spotting the things that we had planted so yeah it was it was fun it was fun to sort of hear the audience's feedback yeah and what sort of views did you get uh i can't remember now i think 
I don't really can't really recall the numbers, but we had enough people kind of you know liking it and yeah. you know YouTube and 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 you know kind of um, Vimeo. Yeah, and and it only mm-hmm. comes. To, we could actually look at the, the analytics, and we'd have people in Brazil and Sydney and Canada and lots of people around the world, kind of you know tuning in. Yeah, um, yeah, and and then eventually we managed to to sell it to a distributor who wanted it as a feature. So we had to do a cut, a, a two hour cut, which was quite hard, uh, and we sold it as a feature. Yeah, cool. Who yeah. did you sell it to? As a distribution company in Canada. Um, so we just that was sort of you know we we had to take something like two two forty five two hours forty five minutes and put it down to two hours. So then came in us and in right what do we need what can we lose do we really need that whole episode do we need this and 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 just cutting it right back which is a really good exercise and even and it was funny how from an editing standpoint we would start cutting that down and go actually that's such a better edit than what we had in the episode yeah interesting it's yeah. So tight, yeah. we had to cut it down yeah. and really strip it right back and you know, we realized when we cut the the series, it was a bit of there's parts of it that were a bit flabby, and it's like we didn't need that particular bit. So you know, great lessons learned, you know, editorially. Yeah, for sure. And so, did that go out theatrically, or or was it streamed TV? Oh no, so it's just streamed. Yeah, just yeah, streamed. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did get to watch your short film, Maria. That's an interesting premise. A, a girl who was when we first see her on the game, <laughs> turning sure. tricks. Uh, and then she decides to go back to school and shock horror. She finds out that her latest customer is, is the teacher. So that's <laughs> a, ni- a nice setup there. And, yeah. also, and all, all the girls, especially the, you know, the, the sort of uh, vulgar types, you know, the yeah. rough types, they can't stand her um, yeah. and shame her and so on. So it's a lot of good tension right at the beginning. Sure. Talk to me how how you got that going. Uh, it was it's an idea that kind of landed on my lap, and I was like, I kind of love the idea that this person goes back to school, and and it's awkward that a client is with the teacher. And I love in in stories, I love like what they call like the inevitable scene, where you know at some point, yeah, they're gonna the other the other class members or the teachers are going to find out this secret that the audience shares, but the two characters have and we with the audience, but it's only a matter of time until the secret's out um, and what problems it causes. And I just love the idea of setting something up, which you don't know how it's going to end, but you know, at some point, you know, it's all going to come out or whatever. Um, yeah, it's going to come to a head, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I wrote the first draft and then I gave it to a friend of mine, Will, who's a writer. And he said, look, I see what you're trying to do. Let me have a pass at this. And he made it really dark. He made it darker than, well, basically he made it what it is. Because my, my take on it was that he, the teacher was like a widow and he, he would hire this prostitute, not for sex, but just to sort of companionship and sleep in the bed. And he, you know, like a replacement for his wife. So he felt someone was there. And then Will was like, no, I think you should just like, he sleeps with her. He's not a widow. He's just, you know, that's what he does. And it just makes him a little bit more edgier. Um, so, yeah, Will did a really nice pass on it. And, um, yeah, it was great fun. How did you go about funding that one? Uh, again, self-funded. Yeah. So um, a lot of my projects, you know, in the early days were um, because I wanted to shoot the stories that I wanted to shoot. 
uh, I, I kind of, uh, I looked into like the odd grant or schemes, but I was like, oh, I've got this idea in October. I want to finish the script by Christmas and shoot it in January. And then I would look up the sort of guidelines for the funding scheme. And it'd be like, well, we're opening, you know, March the 31st is when the first round opens. And then by July, you got the second round where you have to pitch it. And by the following September, we might give you two grand. And I was yeah, like, that's the what? problem with these things, isn't it? I mean, if they gave you a bit more, <laughs> like say double that, that yeah. might be worth waiting for. But two yeah. grand, you, you might as well use your own cash. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. So it was all, it's so, I found like, did you know, I think I'd just rather fund it myself and you've got complete control. And, um, yeah. you know, I, 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 so that's where, that's the way I've always done it, really. Uh, that's why I chose to still spend my money on. Cause I wasn't like in the early days, obviously, as a young man, I'd go out, you know, having a few beers and stuff, but I wasn't a big part of my life. So I would spend a lot of my money on, on making the films. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like I was pissing it up in Ibiza or whatever, and I'd blow two grand there. I would say, well, <laughs> yeah. like to, yeah, save it, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to save it and put it on a location. <laughs> or, or <something laughs> yeah. Like camera hire yeah. for four days. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you go about getting the school? Because that might have been a bit tricky, I suppose, given the subject matter. Yeah. Well, early on, let me see, 2002, I made a film uh, and it was a feature, my last feature in Bristol kind of shot on VHS and, and there was an actress in the area called Lisa and she worked for the television workshop at ITV. Okay. So, so they invited me to come in and do some films with them, which was really good, learning new kit and making a couple of high quality shorts that we got on TV and things. But because we had access to the kids, a lot of the young actors there that could be extras. And I believe it was one of the kids in the, in the group whose mum worked at the school and I used to teach her daughter, and I think she said, oh, look, you know, I'm sure my school would be fine with it because, you know, I know you and all that. And I think that's how we got the school. And they were like, look, it's, it's fine. I don't mind you coming in. It'd be great if our kids can be in it as well. Uh, just don't name check us. And we we're like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. No, that's fine. And also, yeah, it was just they, they had the common sense to go, yeah, we know it's fiction. Yeah, so, good, good. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. which it was funny, actually, jumping ahead to back to Horizon. You know, we we had an episode where we're filming at the Bristol Museum and there was, an, you know, our group have to like break into the museum uh, to, to get something to sort of evade the aliens. And um, we were speaking to Bristol Museum for months and they were like, OK, fine, as long as we don't see that, it's, you know, how you break in and all the rest of it. We're like, yeah, fine, you know, we can make it work, do the risk assessment. And we were working through Bristol Film Office to arrange it. And then on the Friday night before the Monday morning when we shot, Bristol Museum pulled out because oh, yeah. they were scared yeah. that they would have copy kind of people copying us and like they're you know like they're going to watch our episode of a space show in Bristol and go oh look they've had to break into Bristol Museum I could do that I'm going to break into Bristol Museum and it was like I thought common sense might kick in and go do you know yeah. what Joe no it's not like we're literally doing a close-up on the keypad at the back yeah of quite the i mean the paranoia and red tape environment is oh it's bonkers. awful isn't it yeah bonkers. fair play to bristol film office they were furious because mm. they were letting us down and we had to scramble to find an alternative location over the weekend Go but on. like someone's if you're a burglar and you watch our show and you go, oh, I'm going to break into Bristol Museum. Ben, if you're in you're, that mindset, you're a moron. <laughs> you're, you're going to do it anyway, right? Or yeah. 
you know, it's not like we're te- teaching you the how-tos. And if you're just a regular Joe who happened to watch our shows, you're not suddenly going to go, oh, I could break in. Like, you know, it, and I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah, so that's how we got the school <laughs> long, way, <laughs> long way around. We got the school and um, they were very, very generous. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, moving ahead a bit, um, tell me what you're working on now. Yes, well, we've just finished, literally, I'm working through the deliverables on a feature called Fear the Invisible Man, um, which we shot last April. Um, so we've just wrapped that. And we kind of have just signed, last night I finished on the, signed off on the sound mix. Uh, the grade is finished. We're just working on all the deliverables now, getting the stills together in the trailer and things like that. So that's what we've just finished. Um, yeah, what so kind of film is that? It's a kind of a, a gothic thriller action adventure. So it's it's sort of family based. It's not too horrific, but it's based on H.G. Wells's novel of the Invisible Man. Um, and in the original book and the original film, um, the Invisible Man comes back and sort of stays with a Dr. Kemp in his mansion as he terrorizes the local community with his invisibility. But in our story, it's a little bit different where Dr. Kemp's dead and it's his widow that lives in the house so there's a little bit more of a, a romance angle where the invisible man used to know our heroine adeline um as they were friends but they had a little bit of a thing so there's that added into the mix okay and did you write the script or again co-writing it was an american writer called philip day who wrote the script and then um my friend uh, jim griffin who he did a pass on it did a bit of a script edit on it because we needed to strip it down a little bit and tweak some of the characters and change uh, quite a bit of the story, actually, just to make it a little bit um, slicker. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's been written for me, which was great. Um, So, yeah, and then I co-produced it with uh, producer Mike Riley, based out of Bristol with me, and it was our first picture together. So, um, yeah, we're just looking to, it's in the hands of the sales agent now, hopefully to, to get it out there. Sounds good. What sort of budget were you working toward? It started off with something around six figures and it dropped to less than that. Let's say that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And it dropped quite dramatically low, but it was, it was an exercise in what can we do? How do we strip it down to make it work? And it just, what's the best way of getting the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the best picture on screen, the production value. Yeah. Um, and did you have an investor or were you guys? I believe so. Yeah. Right? Our executives, uh, we're putting all that together. So they found the money. Um, but it was just a bit hard to find it really up in COVID times and, and things like that. And because it was my technically not my first feature, but my first proper feature, if you know what I mean, I don't count the comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though I'd shot horizon and other shorts, you're kind of technically untried. You're untested. Yeah. Um, so it was a little bit hard to find the money, but they did. Um, and I thank them for it. And, um, yeah, and we managed to, yeah, managed to, to get it to work. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then just leaning heavily on the VFX background, really, of what me and Al, who did the Horizon stuff, what we could do and what we couldn't do. Yeah, was that yeah. the largest chunk of the budget? No, probably the smallest, oh. actually. Okay. Al did so much work. He probably did about £400,000 worth of effects for about nine grand. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, some yeah. of the work we were doing was like, I would say 90% of it we knew how to do. And there's 10% that we were learning how to do. So we had in the CG world, we had 
you know, kind of sky replacements, green screen, the invisible man sort of walking about, CG cloth, CG uh, particles, motion, uh, you know, capture with like a motion capture suit, you know, like Gollum in Lord of the Rings where someone walks around with the dots on them. So we did a bit of that. Um, Yeah, there was just any type of visual effect. We had it in this movie. Um, Yeah. So how many minutes in the in the film did you need to use like ten altogether or less than that? Of of what of the effects? Yeah, yeah, the effects. Oh god, no, we've got over four hundred shots, so it's it's quite a lot of the picture is is VFX. Yeah, I mean the whole finale. I think the finale, the last twenty minutes. I don't think there's a shot in there that isn't VFX. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. it it ends up ended up being absolutely humongous. Yeah. Did you get a pre-sale on that or, or were you sort of in the process? No, of- no. I think we've got through our sales agent, I think we they were lucky. They were kind enough to give us a, a minimum guarantee. So we've got some money coming in and then they're very, very confident they, they can sell it. So that, yeah. that's what they're doing at the moment. They've got the screener and they're selling it around. So we're looking at, you know, waiting for the, for the offers to come in. You were talking about sound. Does that also include composer and the music and score? Yes, all of that. So yeah. we had a composer join the production um, based out in America and he, Alex, and he did an amazing score, um, really quite sort of big and loud and, and, and well, subtle in places, obviously, but really kind of fitted the picture really nicely. So he's done the score. And um, then uh, we had a post-production house in Bristol called Audio Up Raw, do all the sound mix for us and do all the track lay and sound effects and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah Is that the just- UK cast? Yes, UK cast, yeah. Okay, but names that we might know or people on TV? Um, no, I mean, uh, the, the one name we did have was David Heyman. Okay, yeah. He kind of in for a, for a day um, playing a sort of a, a bit of a slimy, nasty character. And we had a scene in Bath. We had to shut down Bath Street, which is really quite nice. Last April, um, it's kind of like a big main street in, in, uh, in Bath cobbled roads pillars yeah i know it, yeah yeah and we basically shut that down and had a horse and carriage and you know decorated the street which was really good fun and he was in that scene for us he flew down from glasgow and did his bit so yeah that was good fun yeah. Yeah. and overall how long how long did that take was it like five weeks shoot four week uh no we did 18 days okay really quite yeah. quick yeah yeah very yeah. quick i mean we had 18 days i wanted 20 um but we couldn't afford it and we had to do 18 days and it was a real crunch. And you know, you'd look at the schedule and you've got 11 scenes to do on a Thursday and you're like, right. And you're bouncing around all over the script because you're in the same, you know, you, any scene that's in the front room or whatever. So it'd go from day to night to the finale to, you know, whatever it is. And just, and just keeping you, getting your head around that going, okay, so scene 63, she's just come from the Invisible Man in the basement. She walks in to pick up the candle stick and then walks out again. She's angry with him, so she needs to walk a bit faster or whatever. And then the scene after that is her drinking tea by the fireplace in scene two. So let's black out the windows and she's happy now. Or whatever it might be, it's just bouncing around like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what kind of hours? Sort of 10-hour days? Yeah, if not more. Yeah. 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 So right, right the way through. Yeah. 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 It was a push. So, you know, I pro- 18 days, I probably wouldn't want to do that again. I probably want to do 24 or something like that. But, um, you know, big lessons in scheduling and, and t- tweaking the script and, 
and what do you really need and what don't you need? Um, and there'd be some, you know, before we shot, I'd go through and go, do you know what? I don't need that shot of them walking down the corridor. Or you might decide that on the day. You go, do you know what? Actually, now we've shot the scene before and after it. We don't need this bit. We can cut it. Um, and it was just that sort of stuff where you go, okay. Yeah, thinking on your feet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. What kinds of problems did you have along the way and how did you overcome them? Well, everything from schedule, really, budget of limited props or missing props or um, weather wasn't too bad. Um, just kind of thinking on your feet if you ran out of time. Like we had a sequence where we were in the tavern pub and we searched all over to try and find this old looking tavern with wooden, you know, metal walls, uh, sorry, metal brick walls. And, you know, I wanted these wooden pillars across the ceiling and an old bar. And I found one in Wales and they were kind enough uh, to let us shoot there, which we did. And about halfway through the day, our monitor went down um, and we lost an hour. And then it was a big scene with extras and the invisible man turns up and there's a fight and, uh, you know, there's guns going off and struggles and visual effects, background plates and stuff. And we lost an hour. And I thought, it was through just a little bit of miscommunication, but I thought we were going to go over the schedule. But then I was told 10 minutes before wrap that we're not. So you ended up having to do an hour's shoot in 10 minutes <laughs> and just go, right, well, I need a shot of that shoot the bar with no one in it, film the corner of the wall with no one in it. That can be an invisible man thing. Then, all right, mate, fire the gun, left to right, now right to left. Uh, yeah, and it was just sort of, as they say, kick bollock scramble. And then we got it done and it, we managed to make it work. Um, but it's stuff like that where you're just like, you just don't need that. Yeah, it's pretty stressful, isn't it? That stressful. And rush. it's one of those things as well where you can't go back to that location. It's not like pick it up the next day because we're at the house again. Um, we just couldn't go back there because they had obviously taken all the sort of taps off the top of the bar with Stella and all that sort of stuff written on it and taken everything down. So we couldn't go back the following week. And it was just, you know, just shoot a load of plates and see if we could make it work. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was, that was the, that's where the sort of stress came in really. Um, and just trying to squeeze everything in. Yeah. And you have a Western on the go, don't you? You're going to be shooting in Spain, I Yeah. So yeah. hopefully, fingers crossed, we're looking to do that in February. And that's a project that uh, has been written about three years ago. And it's, we're just trying to find the money and the time. And But it was, uh, I had an idea of wanting to do a Western and then I, uh, like a supernatural Western where there's this town that's haunted. Um, and there's a there's a woman who is quite wealthy who comes into this uh, saloon and says, look, I'm looking for a cowboy to help me because my sister's been kidnapped by these thugs and taken to this town. Who's going to help me? She's been taken to this town called Progress and everyone in the saloon kind of looks away and sort of mumbles. And then we realize that Progress is this abandoned town because it's haunted. And this cowboy says, all right, okay, I'll help you. And they travel across, you know, the plains to get to this town. And then so we're going from them to the to the kidnappers in this town and what they're experiencing with the ghosts. But it's a very kind of audience, family-friendly thing, kind of think Ghostbusters meets True Grit, bit of Pirates of the Caribbean. So it's all fun. Um, and, and, and then I found this location over in southern Spain called Mini Hollywood, 
where they there's a town that they built for a fistful of dollars or a few dollars more, the Clint Eastwood Western. Yeah. Um, and I inquired and then I flew over there about three years ago, looked around, spoke to the managers, looked about the desert, looked about and, and, and realized it's perfect and they hire it out to film crews. Um, so yeah, my friend Jim wrote the script and then we've been trying to look for finance and I think, fingers crossed, we might have, have someone who can finance it and if we could look into shoot that kind of February really. But um, that'd be a really nice big project to do, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah. And, and where do you go for sourcing a project like that? Do you go back to sort of the usual crowd that you've been talking to or do you have to look for new faces? What, for cast? Uh, no, no, more money, actually. Money? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, money, is, you know, finding the money isn't really my strong point, which is why I sort of hooked up with my producer friend, Mike, and because he has a bit more of a background in that. And it's just about, you know, speaking to to various people who might want to come on board and and you know who might be, have access, whether it's equity investors or whether it's a sales agent or, you know, yeah. So so people he's already worked with, yes. Or yeah. or you know maybe yeah. Is there someone that we can? Is there a co production that we can pick up with someone over in Spain? And then you know how much do we really need? Because if we, I think there's a nice high tax break in in spain of 30 percent over here it's like 25 so say we're looking to do the movie for a million we'd probably need to raise 700 and then 300 would come from the tax credit um so you know we only need to raise the 700 and then how much of that could we get through in payment in kind if we can use the dp's camera or whatever and then just trying to get that number as low as possible and then think about you know what can we put aside for some cast um and and when we wrote the script yeah jim and i you know we're having one sort of eye on that and saying well actually this role would be good for like a name if we wanted to get a name in yeah. and we can shoot all of his scenes or her scenes in like one day because there's five scenes um and maybe we can do that and that could be the, the star role so give them the kind of not the star role but the cameo role give them lots to do or give them something interesting to do and then come the time where we need to get someone in and we can say hey do you want to come in for two days and we'll pay you 70 grand or whatever it might cost we know that the scenes have been written in a production friendly way that we could shoot them out in a day or two rather than making that role quite a big part of the script and then it costs more money to have them etc so we're kind of a lot of ways we're kind of reverse engineering a lot yeah, of that's interesting yeah it's yeah. a very pragmatic approach to getting a low budget film made isn't it just because yeah. you know that you can realistically only afford one possibly two names and they're only probably going to want to be there for a day or two so yeah. how, how can you make it how can you entice them in yeah um and, and give them enough to do <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But without it getting too expensive. Yeah. yeah. That sounds and good. So that's, I think that's what, you know, we tried to do there. And I, there's a DP that I, I grew up watching his work, um, a guy called Dean Cundy. And um, he shot like Jurassic Park and Back to the Future and a few other things. And um, a couple of years ago, I had uh, one of my books that I, I, I had released. I, I, wrote to Dean and I said, would you be interested in doing like a blurb quote for the back? If I send you a copy of the book, can you read it? And if you endorse it, could you give me a quote? And he said, yeah. So he took a month to read it and came back and said, yeah, you know, I'll happily give you a quote for the back of the book. So we were emailing back and forth. And I said, look, I don't know if you're interested, but I got this Western. <laughs> would you be interested in shooting it? And he goes, okay, send it over. Anyway, he loved it. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. 
So we still need to talk, but it's like, if it'd be great if he comes on board to, to, to shoot it. And then that's another kind of feather in our cap when we write to any named actors to go, hey, do you want to come over for two days and do this part? Dean Cundy's going to shoot it. At least they know it's going to be shot well or it's going to look half decent. What's he shot? What's he shot? Yeah, yeah so he did like Back to the Future, Jurassic Park. Okay, Hollow's big Burton, ones. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah. so I grew up watching his his work. Um, uh, and yeah, so if he's able to, to, to come over, that'd be great. You know, yeah, definitely. Schedule and finances allow. But I think if I've just learned that over the last couple of years about don't just write the script and go, right, how can we finance it? I think you need to think, build into the script structure of, you know, like we've got another project coming up that we're looking to shoot in, in, in the summer. And it's like we've written a star, a cameo part for that. And I, you know, from doing your reading on blogs or funding books and things, a lot of them say, if you've got a, if you've got a cameo, a named actor, you need to get them on screen within 10 minutes. So when the sales agent watches that movie, they see that famous face. If they only watch 10, 15 minutes of the movie, they go, yeah, oh, I can see he's in it. Great. Oh, yeah, we'll buy it. And then they walk out the theater. Um, so when you write your script, make sure within the first 12 pages, you have that cameo part turning up and then litter their scenes throughout, like five scenes dotted throughout the movie, and then maybe they're in the finale. And then when they're not on screen, other characters talk about them. So when the audiences watch the movie, they sense that that cameo part or their star part, as it were, has been featured in the film a lot more than what they actually did. And all of those five scenes were shot in like a day and a half. They were on early, they were off late. You know, and they were in the finale, and the audience goes, "Oh yeah, he, was, he wasn't just one guy on the end of a phone; he was in it quite a lot." And I think that's you just have to write that into the into the script, and but in you know, stage, you know, stage it that way. Um, yeah, I think it's a very know. good tip. Yeah, for this one, have you got uh, any cast that we might recognise name wise? What for the western? Um, yeah, the western. Yeah. Well, yeah, a couple of names have been thrown around. You know, they haven't been. Formally attached, yeah, or anything yeah. like that, or anything okay. like that. Yeah. But we've kind of got an idea that you know, there's a there's a sheriff, a ghost sheriff, and someone like Richard Dreyfus would be great, or someone like that, where you kind of get them over for a, you know, for a couple of days. Um, yeah, anyway, you know, something like that. Um, um, there's you know, someone like there's a part for someone like a John Goodman, or or someone like that. Um, and just kind of think, okay, how can we make it attractive? You know, what would what's their minimum rate or whatever? You know, if they, if we were to say, hey, come over for a week with your wife and go around Europe and stop off for two days in southern Spain, you know, do you fancy it? And just, you know, what can we make? How can we make it attractive to them? Um, but I think ultimately it is the writing as well, because it can't just be, you know would you do 50 grand a day for two days is the money if we can make the writing really good. So Jim and I, we we break down the script and go, okay, I have the five scenes that this cameo part is in. Can we make them really distinctly different? So in scene one, they're getting really angry and shouting at the other person or scene two, there's a lot of physical stuff they have to do scene through scene three. They're really kind of brooding and they're doing this thing or just physically or from an actor perspective, how can we make it different? So they go, Oh, you know, I'm really excited about doing scene four because I get to throw the vase out the window or smash that thing or 
something that they can go, oh, yes, that's good. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. Um, yes. And make it interesting. Mm. Um, so we kind of build that into the script. Yeah, very good. And more reverse engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah very you good. Know. And also yeah. it works. It's not like it damages the film. It makes the film better as well because we see all these different areas of that character Yeah, um, yeah. doing something, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. giving them something juicy to do. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And what's the end game, I suppose, is the last question. For you, that is. You know, are you, are you wanting to do more higher budget independent films in the UK, yeah. do you see yourself moving to the States and doing, you know, I did, bigger projects? Me, yeah, for me, I would just love to, it's funny, you know, you just kind of think, I would just love to keep doing what we're doing. And if you're able to do, have more money to do more things that you want to do, then, you know, that's great. You know, I've got a couple of other scripts. And I think one thing I, I one thing I was, I learned from, I love the director Ridley Scott and, um, I learned a lot from him and, and for your listeners, I think anytime you can get a Ridley Scott DVD and listen to his commentaries, he's just, it's just so good. All the behind the scenes stuff. So kind of full of information. And he's just says he's constantly developing his own stuff. He's not waiting for someone to give him a script. And he said, he's always thinking about two or three projects ahead. Um, and just by chance, that's kind of happened with me where I'm like, okay, I've got this Western and then we've done Invisible Man. So off the back of that, we could do this. And I've got this story. I've got this Christmas idea that I want to do, which is based on a friend's short story. So I might give that to Jim. Maybe I give him some bit of money to write that. So then when I'm selling the film that I'm about to make, perhaps I can then present that script as the next one. So you're kind of piggybacking and going, right, okay, so say we do the Western in February, perhaps the following Christmas, perhaps we could get the Christmas film off the ground. Okay, so that needs to start writing, you know, maybe later this year. And just to be developing that. Um, um, and all the way, because all the way through Invisible Man, me and Jim were working on the Western. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're not finishing a film and then going, right, what's the next one? And then it's a year and a half down the line. So that's one of the things, you know, if I could keep, just keep doing that. And if the budgets happen to grow, then fine. If they don't, fine. As long as I'm filming, as long as I'm being creative. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, in between the, the bigger projects, are you shooting ads and that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I haven't done that for a year, just probably just because I've been focused on the Invisible Man, but yeah, kind of day job sometimes. Yeah. A lot of just a bit of DP work or through my production company, just doing a commercial or two which is good and it keeps, you know, kind of, it's a nice kind of project to shoot for, you know, two or three months and get your teeth into and then move on to the next one. So yeah, that's the kind of, you know, it keeps me busy, but I just get off on, on the creative thing really. I mean, I, I know when we were doing the effects for Visible Man, I was around Al's house and just sat there and we were putting this shot together where, you know, we were changing the color of the sky and painting out that car and then putting in a bush and then putting a fire in the top window. And over the course of the day, the shot just grew and, and it worked out great. And I said, to Al, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Yeah, I know. Totally get it. You know, yeah. There's nowhere yeah. else I'd rather be. It's just being creative and the shot works right. We've done that. It's a puzzle. That's what we looked at as a puzzle to solve. Every single shot's a puzzle to solve. What needs to be done? How can it work? Right, done that. And then the whole thing resets itself as you bring in the next shot and you go, right, what's the next thing? It's that. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just exciting. And like when I visited the, the Western set two or three years ago, funny enough, it was actually on my birthday and I was sat in the saloon having a whiskey and... Um, 
it was a there's a it's open to the public so there's a bit of a theme parky thing going on but i happened to walk out of the two literally the swinging doors of the saloon and i stood looking out into the square and it was empty apart from this town and there was a cowboy on a horse who sort of walked around the corner and then about 30 seconds later a horse and cart pulled up outside the bank and for about two minutes i was in the wild west and then and then about 30 seconds later, this family of four with pink t-shirts and ice creams come walking around the corner. <laughs> and spoil it all for you. And spoil it all. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I was like, oh my God, I've gone back in time. And yeah. I think that's what I love about being able to make films. You're, you're creating a world, you're, you're going back in time. And, you know, with Invisible Man, we were back in Victorian times, horses and carts and all that kind of stuff. And it's you're able to sort of time travel, basically, and just being in that world. And it's fabulous. I can't, you know, that's where I want to be. Yeah. Well, Paul, we should end on that. Thanks so much. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Paul Dudridge. Thanks for listening. And if you're a regular here and enjoy the podcast, do please subscribe. Take care.